You're listening to a podcast from JNNP. Welcome to September's JNNP podcast. This month, we find out about a rare, but potentially fatal, neurological condition which can occur following monoclonal antibody treatment, that is, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. The early clinical signs are quite unspecific neurological signs. They could be um, convulsions, they could be uh, paresthesis, paralysis, but also cognitive dysfunction, which is not really obvious in, in a patient with chronic disease who may have all sorts of alterations in their, in their clinical symptoms. But before we get on to that, the bewildering and distressing experience Oliver Sacks accounts in his 1984 book, A Leg to Stand On, where he struggled to relearn to walk and felt isolated from his own leg after it sustained a nasty injury. John Stone, a consultant neurologist in the Department of Clinical Neurosciences at the University of Edinburgh, explains why he thinks this was a case of functional paralysis and why Sachs's account is so valuable. Here he is, speaking to me earlier. To begin with, could you just talk us through these events which led up to Sachs's illness? In the book, Oliver Sachs describes quite a nasty leg injury that he had while he was on holiday in Norway. He came across a bull and, uh, as he was running away from the bull, fell off um, a small cliff and twisted his leg and had actually had a ruptured quadriceps tendon. So he did have quite a nasty injury. He describes the pain of it and having to drag himself down the mountain with a leg that felt, even at that stage, felt rather senseless and out of control. Mm. He managed to get to help and uh, was flown back from Norway to London to a London hospital and had an operation to repair the quadriceps tendon. But it was events after that that led to him, him writing the book. So, so what happened after that? What were the, the symptoms that he experienced after this? traumatic event? So he describes after the operation, in fact during his first session with a physiotherapist, that he just couldn't move his leg. Um, and it was more than just that his tendon had been ruptured and he couldn't actually physically move it. He felt that he couldn't think how to move the leg. Um, he felt that he'd forgotten something about the leg. He talked about the problem being not just a lesion in his leg, but a lesion in himself. Mm. There was one particular occasion where he, he thought his leg was out, was in the bed, straight, and then a nurse came in and pointed out to him that his leg was actually hanging off the side of the bed. The way he writes about it, it appears he found the whole thing really quite bewildering, as, as, as one might if this happened to you, because he was trying to make sense of it both as a patient and as a neurologist. What he was struggling with was the severity of the experience and the complete loss of sense of ownership of the leg, which was something that wasn't really described. Do you think his knowledge of the evidence at the time and and what was known at the time actually added to this sense of bewilderment that he felt? Well, I think he was trying to make sense of it from a neurological perspective. Um, Initially, he wondered if he'd had a stroke, but he quickly discounted that. He had an experience with migraine, visual scotoma, and wondered if it was something a bit like that. Mm. But I think it's clear that he really didn't know what was going on. But later, when he spoke to lots of other patients with peripheral injuries, and they all seemed to have very similar experiences, that led him to feel, well, actually, there's something going on here with people who develop, who have physical injuries and have central effects, which gives them a feeling of disconnection. In the 
first few weeks, I think what's interesting is the, the experience that he had mirrors very much the experience of patients of mine with functional limb paralysis in that he was told by the orthopaedic surgeon that there was nothing wrong with him. Although the whole leg was weak, he felt that people were only really paying attention to his injury. Mm. Then later when he saw the physiotherapist, the, the physiotherapist was saying to him, I can see that you're trying, but somehow it's, it's as if you're not trying at all. The quote here, you put out all this effort, but somehow the effort isn't managing to do things. And he says that this is, was very much what he felt himself. And that's something that is very typical of patients that I see with functional limb paralysis, many of whom have had uh, minor injuries, but, but, but most of whom haven't. So on to a diagnosis for Sachs's problem. He emphasised the denervation of his quadriceps that he suffered as a result of the accident. Uh, and he also discounted hysteria as he said his symptoms were secondary to a neurological problem rather than causing them. What's your opinion of his condition? Well, I think if you look back to when he wrote this book, which was um, in the early 1980s, and in fact his experience was in the 1970s, I can fully understand why he would not have considered this to be a hysterical problem, because hysteria, as it was thought of then, was uh, a psychodynamic type of problem which related to higher-order thinking processes. There was a sort of Freudian idea about that the patient has a conflict and they solve the conflict by converting that stress within their psyche into physical symptoms, and that the symptom itself needs to be symbolic of that conflict. And I can see why he would have thought, well, that's not going on, because I, didn't, I would agree with him and it's not going on. And so he it quite rightly, I think, says, well, this, doesn't, this is not hysteria. Instead, it seems to have been a problem to do with body perception that's been triggered by a peripheral injury and pain. Mm. But he rather leaves it hanging about what that problem is. And he's actually written a response to your review. Could you talk us through what he says there? I was very, very pleased that he'd found the, t- found the time to do that. Oliver Sachs' books were one of the things that inspired me to do neurology myself. His own response, it sort of reiterates the themes in his book, which is that he felt this was, this was a peripheral injury, obviously, as it was, and that there was uh, a central effect of this, and that's what he entitles his commentary, The Central Effects of Peripheral Injury. He talks about how the actual physical injury could have caused some of the things that were a bit hard to explain, like movement of the problems at the hip, but ultimately talks about the complex perceptual and relational difficulties, these sort of things being increasingly recognised as a normal brain response to peripheral injury. And it's true, there's there's an increasing literature on this, particularly in uh, subjects of complex regional pain syndrome. He says that there's such a robust neurological basis to his injury that there's no real need to postulate a dissociative or functional disorder but he does say that there may have been elements of functional overlay superimposed on a very real neurological condition. My view of what happened happened to him is really not that different to his. I think he has had a central effect of a peripheral injury. And there's a tension here between um, people describing things like complex regional pain syndrome and saying, look, there's problems going on in the brain. And people like myself who are saying, well, look, there are patients with 
what we call functional paralysis, which is also called conversion disorder, maybe their disordered body image and perception of their body is the, is the same thing. So again, I think what we're seeing in Oliver Sacks' editorial is, in a way, a bit of dualism creeping in into the idea. Well, it's you know that, that a problem has to be either neurological or psychological. I mean, do you think things like imaging are helping us to to draw these together? Well, I think they are and they aren't. It's helpful, for example, in the field that I work in, functional symptoms. For many years, neurologists, well, many still do regard that as a psychiatric problem. And brain imaging is one way that you might help persuade neurologists, well, there's actually something going on in the brain in these patients. But it also, it can be taken too far the other way as well. And so people may have a tendency to say, well, actually, it's all going on in the brain. And there's, and this is just a problem with brain networks and function, which would be too extreme as well. I think what it's clear that psychological factors, beliefs, behavior, all influence these symptoms as well. What people have great difficulty with is trying to hold things in the middle and saying, well, actually, these are, like many disorders, disorders in which the mind and the brain are both uh, relevant. And in fact, even the terms mind and brain start to become meaningless when one thinks about them. Mm-hmm. And, and the editorial by Professor David, really, talk, which also is in relation to the review, also talks about the difficulties of trying to overcome that dualism. One of the main problems there is that people... If you have a physical symptom in which there's any form of psychological factors that are meant to be relevant, they still automatically tend to think, well, that's sort of exaggeration. That's the patient doing it. And Professor Davis' article is really about the stigma between conditions which are thought to be voluntary, and that's what patients with functional paralysis suffer from hugely, from those that are somehow involuntary. So, for example, complex regional pain syndrome has a big biomedical literature and has achieved, is always achieving uh, disease status. And his article is really arguing that the duality lies between those things, between whether doctors believe this is a genuine problem or somehow partially voluntary. Sure. Well, John, thanks very much for, for coming on and speaking to us about this. Pleasure. All the articles John mentioned are available now on the website. There's his review, along with Oliver Sacks' response, and the editorial by Anthony David. As well as the book A Leg to Stand On, further resources John recommends to help patients make sense of functional symptoms are neurosymptoms.org and also nonepileptictattacks.info. Both are self-helping and free to access. And now some practical advice and an overview of a new case definition of a rare but potentially fatal neurological condition which can follow monoclonal antibody treatment. This month's Editor's Choice looks at progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, that is, which follows treatment with monoclonal antibodies. And author Dirk Menzer, who's from the Paul Ehrlich Institute in Germany, joins me on the line now to discuss it. So good morning, Dirk. Thanks very much for coming on. Good morning. To begin with, could you give us a bit of background about progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy or or PML? I mean, how rare is it and how much do we know about its characteristics? Uh, Well, first of all, we basically invented this disease with HIV infection 
about 20 years ago, which was often seen in AIDS patients uh, when they got loss of their immune function. And it is a mostly fatal disease caused by a virus attacking the, the brain tissue and um, causing demyelination and destruction of the, the neurons. And this leads off obviously then to the, to the neurological symptoms we see. Uh, so th- this is basically the background, and from from the HIV, we basically knew most of the the pathology of the virus and the infection. Um, so obviously, this disease is um, is very new. Um, and what are the the detection problems with it at the moment? The the virus is um, mainly within tissues, either within the the, the brain tissues, or uh, within B cells, for example, or uh, bone marrow. So it's not easily detected in the um, blood compartment, for example. For detection, you need to look into the CFF, the central spinal fluid, or into tissues uh, like biopsies. So it's not a routine investigation, actually, to to detect it. Mm. And uh, the antibody detection doesn't really give you an idea how active the infection is or the reactivation of the infection is. And that is a problem. So we can measure and look whether someone is infected, but it doesn't give you um, an acute uh, information on how the status of infection or how virulent the infection at present is. Mm. And do you think uh, clinicians are particularly aware of this? I mean, the the, vi- the, um, the problem in general? No, I don't think so. Um, with the treatment of HIV, they were. With the treatment of the Tysabri, Natalizumab, they also were because that was um, uh, seen in clinical trials and, and was, was new uh, for them. So they were, were and very vigilant. But for other monoclonal antibodies causing immune suppression, um, the physicians are not so aware. And that was one reason of our publication. Okay. So um, in your JNMP paper, you've put together a, a case definition for, for PML following monoclonal antibody treatment. Could you just talk us through some of the you know, the highlight messages from this? As I mentioned, the diagnostic uh, is um, difficult at some stages. If you have a full-blown uh, disease, you will find virus in the central spinal fluid and in biopsies, and you will see the, the results of the neurodegeneration in the MRI scans. So that, that is fairly obvious. Um, but the case definition should distinguish between cases which are similar to PML, like uh, some of the MS relapses. Um, So what we put together was uh, an algorithm um, how to distinguish uh, the true cases of PML uh, to our experience and those who can have other um, causes. For example, stroke could, could on the MRI scan and symptoms like paralysis look similar to PML, but Mm. eventually the progression is different, so that would be a clinical sign, but still um, you need to have further information like on the laboratory information and the MRI scan to Mm -hmm. see the differences between the disease and uh, the possible alternatives. So that was the reason why we tried to define certain steps of the case definition, um, what is needed to have a high certainty of diagnosis and a low certainty, which is um, helping the physicians to to actually um, further investigate or even treat. Mm. So, so what are the main clinical signs? Does it have a typical presentation? Well, from our uh, retrospective analysis, 
um, the, the early clinical signs are quite unspecific neurological signs. They could be um, convulsions, they could be uh, paresthesis, paralysis, but also c cognitive dysfunction. Um, we had cases where the partner realized that the, the partner got very aggressive or lost cognitive function like reading and, and counting. So that could be also a sign which is not really obvious in, in a patient with chronic disease who may have all sorts of alterations in their in their clinical symptoms. But um, basically what, what we saw is unspecific neurological signs which had a sort of progression and were not typically for the, the underlying disease, for example. Right, okay. And when you put together your, your case definition, obviously there are a few monoclonal antibodies that are used. Did you find any significant differences in PML that followed these different antibodies? Well, we know that um, some of the monoclonal antibodies uh, are attacking the B-cell function, which are a um, uh, main driver for the immunity, in addition to the trigger of the T-cell function as well, and uh, the cytotoxic T-cell function. So all um, monoclonal antibodies interfering in that specific pathway in the immune system are at high risk of uh, also causing PML. Like Tysabri, which is an anti-green inhibitor, uh, which has probably the highest potential in this direction. But there are also rituximab, for example. We have seen quite a number of cases uh, which are a B-cell uh, inhibitor. So those are probably the, the targets and those monoclonal antibodies working on those targets are at high risk causing PML. So I think that that's something uh, we need to make the physicians and the clinicians aware of that if they have those treatments on board, they have to remember that this is a quite fatal or dramatic uh, complications of the treatment. The second part of your paper goes on to apply this case definition to um, the 119 suspected cases that have been reported in Germany. You're from the, the Paul Ehrlich Institute, which is the, the national competent authority for, for biomedicine in Germany. So what did you find when you applied this? Well, first of all, we, we realized that uh, within the neurological um, sector of the treatment of monoclonal antibodies, uh, there was quite high awareness, and that was due to the to the implementation within the risk mention plan, for example, to have a high awareness in this direction. Whereas when we looked into the oncology uh, treatment groups, we did find a number of cases, but the elaboration of the diagnosis was less reliable. So what we would like to say with our paper is that a certain diagnostic scheme should run once you have the suspicion of PML to make the clear distinction um, whether it's a true case or not. If it's a case, you can act um, eliminating the monoclonal antibody, for example, out of the system to increase the immune function. Well, thank you very much for that um, very practical advice. Do you have any other messages for, for clinicians with regard to PML? I would just like to highlight, highlight that our case definition should be used as a risk minimization issue um, to have uh, further surveillance on this, um, this complication in some of the treatment areas. But also, um, it not only just the monoclonal antibodies, of course, because we, we know that some other immune suppression do interfere with T-cell function, mm -hmm. and uh, that could be also a complication for those uh, patients. So I think that, that is something that we would like to increase the vigilance of the physicians, that this is a 
sometimes fatal or disabling complication, which could could have a, a better outcome if you have an early diagnosis. Dirk Menzer from the Paul Ehrlich Institute there. The case definition, along with an accompanying editorial, are up now on the site. And for an even more digestible version of the work, you can download a poster from the podcast page. That's everything for this month. Next month's podcast is a bump of movement disorder special, including Andrew Lees on his early work into Parkinson's disease and how patients' personal rating of response to dopaminergic replacement therapy is not closely correlated with those on objective scales. Come back then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.